0: Good morning. Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His abundant mercy, who has begotten us again unto a living hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, by faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, Wherein you rejoice, though now for a season if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, knowing this, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried, with, uh, uh, be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you loved, in whom, though now you seem not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets searched and inquired diligently as they prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ that was in them did signify when he testified of the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow understanding in that it was revealed to them that not unto themselves but unto us were these things ministered by the Holy Spirit that came down from heaven and those who preached the gospel unto you, things which angels long to look into. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 through 12, I want you to notice with me that Peter ties what he calls an inheritance that is eternal to the concept of salvation. In fact, he'll talk about salvation all throughout that first paragraph that he begins to a people who are suffering, trying to give them incentive to look forward to how to live the Christian life despite the difficulties that so often are a part of it. And you'll notice as he speaks of that salvation, he says, it's not now, but it'll be revealed at the end of time to you, that which you long for, that which you enjoy, verse 4 and verse 5. As he speaks of that salvation, he says it concerns the most important possession that you own, your eternal soul, verse 9. And then he indicates in verse 10 that this very salvation that you experience was something that the prophets anticipated with great uh, exertion in trying to know more about it, verse 10. Now as the apostle Peter is speaking of the prophets, he doesn't tell us which ones they are. But as we read in Matthew and Luke, those gospel writers that give us the details of the birth and the infancy of Jesus Christ, we can identify that there are prophets that they speak and say that they wrote and Jesus fulfilled this. Specifically, as you look in Matthew and Luke, you'll find uh, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Micah. And there are other Old Testament writers like David and uh... moses who incidentally the book of acts tell us are prophets in acts chapter two and acts chapter three and what they're indicating to us is that the birth of jesus is not the beginning of the story it is at the heart of the story and it's incredible to read through the gospels and as you do so to see how they reflect back on the words of the prophets matthew is moved by the holy spirit and he recounts what happens when joseph knows That his wife Mary is expecting and he doesn't understand the genesis of it. And in Matthew 1 verse 23 the angel says unto him that the virgin shall conceive and shall give birth to a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. And that passage in Matthew 1.23 is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 and Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And the idea is that the Messiah is one who is going to be all God and all man all at once. Can you imagine if you're Isaiah as you're writing that and anticipating what's the fulfillment of this? Then you go over to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 5 and you read how the gospel writer Matthew is giving us the details of the birth of Jesus. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem and uh, he quotes Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. You Bethlehem of Judea, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Micah's message was Matthew is showing us that this ruler to come is going to be a humble ruler. As great as his mission, he's going to be born in an obscure part of the world. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15. You have Matthew again explaining to us why Mary and Joseph are leaving their home, going away from Israel and going down to Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my son. And that is a quotation of Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And in the fulfillment of that, you have Herod who's trying to execute all of those Hebrew baby boys. And God is helping the Messiah be delivered from persecu- from execution and to be saved. Because there's a plan that's been in place that the prophets have spoken about. And then in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 18, sadly, we have the quotation of Jeremiah 31 and verse 15 because of Herod's wicked act. All those Hebrew male children are slaughtered. And his attempt to get rid of his rival, he thought, the Messiah. And the mothers of Israel are weeping as they lose their little boys in this. But you know Luke is the same way. It's Luke who begins to record for us the details of what takes place at the birth and the infancy of Jesus it begins in Luke chapter 1 when her cousin comes to her and she finds out the blessing that's involved and she sings what we just sang. In Luke chapter 1, we call it the Magnificat. This song of praise is the fact that God is using her. And she quotes the Psalms, you know, David the prophet. And as she quotes in Luke chapter 1 and verse 50, she's quoting from a psalm, Psalm 103 and verse 17. And then in Luke 1 and verse 53, she's quoting Psalm 107 and verse 9. The events that took place 2,000 years ago in the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the gospel writers recount for us to help us to understand how important this is. But hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the prophets are writing about it. And the thing is, as they write, they're wanting to know what is the fulfillment of these expectations. You'll notice on the sermon note sheet that there are two parts to this lesson. I'll preach the first part and Hiram the second. He's going to talk about what the people experienced. But before that, we want to see what the prophets expected. And I want to just notice three things this morning. First of all, I want you to notice what it was that the prophets expected. What they expected was grace and salvation, verse 10. They understood about grace. It was a word they used in their vocabulary. 41 times in the Old Testament they signify or speak of grace. And grace meant meant in the Old Testament what it means in the New Testament, what it means to us, it means undeserved favor. The idea of grace is of one who has, who gives to one who does not have but who needs. It is the action of a superior who gives to an inferior what the inferior needs but cannot deserve. They often sang about it in Israel. In the benediction of Aaron, a song that would have been sung, a song that we sing, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. Numbers chapter 6 verse 24 through 26. They understood and they spoke of a grace. They knew what they had. But they understood that there was something greater to come, even if they didn't really understand what that was all about. The Hebrews writer talks about how they went through the rituals that God put in place for them, and in doing so, they were taking care of their sin problem, but they realized that it was not God's ultimate solution, because the Hebrews writer says the law being a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of those things itself, it could not make uh, those worshipers who came there unto perfect. Because if they were made perfect, then they would not have continued to offer those things. There would have been no more reminder of sins. But in these sacrifices that are offered, there is a reminder made year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. And so the Jews that were anticipating a Messiah to come, they realized that God had an atonement for them. But there was something greater. And so Isaiah who writes 700 years before Christ writes about one that the Jews would anticipate for those 700 years to be that suffering servant, the Christ, the Messiah. They were longing for him to come and bring salvation and to bring grace. And so Isaiah would say all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every man to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When you think about how people would live and they would die and generation would come and generation would go, they were anticipating, they were looking for grace and salvation. They didn't really understand. And when the Messiah comes, they had some misunderstandings, but they knew that salvation was coming with this anointed one chosen of God. What did they expect? They expected grace and salvation. But another thing that's interesting is that we see how they expected The way that they expected is with searching and careful inquiries that were made. They exerted themselves to know more about what was going to take place. Can you imagine being Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Micah and other prophets who were writing these words, incredible words and trying to understand what they meant, looking around in their lifetime contemporary and saying, is this the thing that's been prophesied? Is it being fulfilled now? I want to know more about it. I don't know how many of you like wasabi. I like hot and spicy foods. And uh, I learned a little bit more about wasabi. Uh, we had uh, some, uh, some uh, beef and we used horseradish sauce with that. But I suggest to you that the likelihood is, is that you have never had true wasabi. This hot, spicy plant is used in oriental dishes. They tell us that only 13% of what is manufactured as wasabi is actually the real thing. Most of it is horseradish colored green. And there's a reason for that. It's very difficult to grow wasabi. It takes 15 months to cultivate that plant. And so much can go wrong. If it gets too much sunlight, it's not going to make it. If it gets too little sunlight, it's not going to make it. And there's water that has to flow through that plant all the time. And it has to be between 55 and 65 degrees. So enjoy your green horseradish sauce next time you're having your oriental dish. You know, I would like to, since I learned that, I'd like to find me some real wasabi. I collected baseball cards when I was a little kid. And Well, I guess I uh, haven't sold them, so I still collect them. I was looking for the, what they said was the most difficult card to collect as a baseball card collector. It was the T111 Honus Wagner tobacco card. Very few of them were made. Very few of them exist. And if you can get a hold of one, and, you know, folks who have a whole lot of money look and try to go to auctions and look through estates trying to find one. Can you imagine? Maybe there's something that you really desire greatly that's rare and hard to get a hold of. Whatever earthly thing that is, it does not seem to compare with what they were looking for. Those prophets who write, because the words that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1 and verse 10 indicate exertion, great effort. They search, they long diligently to know who is this about, what is this about? Even the angels. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 12 when he says that they long to look in these things. The word that's used there indicates the idea of bending over, stooping over to try to get a good look at. They want to know what's been prophesied. Is this it? How do we know? And then we get to the birth and the lifetime of Jesus. And John the Baptist is his forerunner. Do you remember that? And in John chapter 1 and verse 21, the people who are listening to him preach, they're wanting to know, are you the expected one? John 1, 21, he says, no, it's not me. And then John's about to die. And as John's about to lose his head the Herod, he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, are you the expected one or do we wait for another? Luke 7 and verse 19, it's hard for us to understand How anxiously they longed for the realization of the prophet's expectation. But just go with Mary and Joseph and Jesus into the temple right after he's born. And go and visit Simeon for just a moment in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. And how he was looking for the consolation of Israel. The one who would heal the spiritual wounds of the nation. Or go with, with Mary and Joseph to see Anna. This prophetess who had remained in the temple so long and she along with all the other Jews was looking for the redemption of Israel. Luke chapter 2 in verse 38. It is absolutely impossible for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the prophets because for 2,000 years people have at least heard the gospel preached that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Can you imagine being those prophets who are writing and saying... How will we know? How do we see? When will it be? These promises that have been made. And I suggest to you that in every generation there are individuals. And how wonderful it is to be able to witness that and see that those who are seeking. And I love what our Savior, the Messiah, says in Matthew 7 and verse 7. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. My confidence is that if somebody really wants to find the Messiah today, they'll be able to find him. And here are those prophets who are seeking and searching and exerting themselves. That's how they expected. But I also want you to see who it was that they expected in verse 11 and 12. The Spirit of Christ is testifying to them, letting them know. And Peter says he focuses on the end of Jesus' ministry. What's interesting is he says that they prophesied of the suffering of Christ and the glory what that was to follow. They are focusing on the entirety of the gospel. And it's impressive to me that looking for those things implies the necessity of a birth. Jesus comes along and he says, "I'm the fulfillment, all that has been expected, I'm the one." And so often he will say that after he has been raised from the dead, right before he goes back to heaven, he collects his followers together in Luke 24 and verse 44. And he says, these are the things that I said unto you while I was with you, that all things that are written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me must be fulfilled. They're trying to grasp it, get this gospel message that Jesus has been living out. And in Luke 18 and verse 31, he's about to go to the cross and he says that all that the prophets have said are going to be accomplished. And then after Jesus is raised from the dead in Luke 24, 27, he's walking with those two men on the road to Emmaus, these disciples. And as he does, he says, all that's written in the law and the prophets was about me. Now, there are those who are trying to get that before Jesus dies. I had not seen this before, but in preparing this lesson, I came across John 1 and verse 45. And Philip is one of the ones who's impressed with the Messiah who is here. And he goes to Nathanael and he tells him, We have found the Messiah of whom the prophets have spoken, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But on the whole, people missed it. And so they crucified, according to God's eternal plan, the one who came to this earth in order to save us from our sins. And that's why Peter would say in Acts chapter 10 and verse 43, in speaking to Cornelius, that the prophets spoke of the one who would bring forgiveness to the one of whom the prophets had spoken, to everyone that believes. We often call this the mystery. You know, Paul in Ephesians talks about the mystery of the gospel. And the mystery is that which was not revealed but now is revealed. And the mystery is that in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, salvation can come to everyone that believes, regardless of their nation, regardless of their age, regardless of their past circumstance. That's who the prophets had in mind. A little bit of local news. I don't know how many many of you heard about this How many of you, you know, we go to Christmas parties with uh, our jobs so uh, so often, and one of the things they always do is they have a white elephant gift exchange. You ever done that? You know how that works? A lot of times it's often called also the Dirty Santa game. And the way those rules work uh, are, of course, that you can pick a gift randomly, however that's determined, and somebody can either pick another gift or they can steal yours. Well, the picture of the lady you see up there is Lori Jane's. Lori went to her office party uh, in Louisville. And as they went through that white elephant gift exchange, first thing that she got was a $25 TJ Maxx gift card. Ladies, that's a pretty good gift, isn't it? But somebody stole it per the rules of the game. And so she grabbed the last gift that was there. It's random. And what she got was somebody had bought a, a little small collection of lottery tickets. And the first one she scratched off was a $50 winner. So she's already gotten more than the $25 limit. She scratched off another one and was the top prize winner. $175,000. Co-workers couldn't believe it. They, there's apparently a barcode or something on there. They scanned it, found out, yep, this is the real deal. She actually won. Here's the thing about Lori James, who's holding that check. She wasn't even expecting that. She was happy with a TJ Maxx gift card, but she got so much more than she even thought she would. In a way infinitely greater, people who lived day by day were expecting that there was something greater, but they had no idea how great that greatness was. Even the great and godly writers who are the prophets who are writing these words down, they anticipate something wonderful, but they don't know how great. And yet they search diligently, longing and looking for the salvation and grace that was to come in the person of the Messiah. You know, Augustine tells us that the New Testament is veiled in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is unveiled in the New Testament that Christ is... Enfolded in the Old Testament and is unfolded in the New Testament the prophets unveiled and unfolded for us something that for hundreds even thousands of years they were looking for the fulfillment of people were living and dying looking for the Messiah to come and in a moment of history not unlike our own where people were struggling were living and dying and dealing with death and with joy The greatest event of history occurred. Hiram, come preach to us about it.
1: There had never been another birth like Jesus' birth, and there never will be. Jesus' birth is unique among all of the births that have ever taken place in the history of the world. His birth separates the B.C. from the A.D. His birth is different. He's the only person in the history of the world who ever chose to be born. Here you are. You had no say in that. Jesus is the only one to ever be born of a virgin. He's the only one of all of the people who've entered the world who came into the world with an angelic escort as the angels sang at his birth and praised God. Jesus's birth separates him. It makes him different from everybody who's ever existed. The prophets tell us that he's coming and he does come. And while it's true that the birth of Jesus is not all that there is to know about him, you can read about his action packed life and all of the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It is true that nothing that Jesus ever accomplished would have taken place had he not first been born. And so it's not an overstatement to say Jesus's birth changed everything. His birth changed the world. The prophet said that he was coming. And when you get to the end of the Old Testament, if you're in tune with God's frequency, you know this isn't the end of the story. Like Marvel fans wait in the movie theater for just one more scene after the credits. People get to the end of the Old Testament and they know that it's not just about the predictions that He's coming, but about the realization of His actual birth taking place in the fullness of time at the right time. He would come, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, and He did. Every one of the gospel writers in their own way tells us about Jesus's entry into the world. But Luke's is probably the most comprehensive. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Luke chapter two in Luke's gospel. He leaves no stone unturned as he begins with the announcement to Mary in Luke one, 26 through 28. The Magnificat that we sang before the lesson that Neil mentioned in Luke one, 46 down through 56. And then in the actual details of the birth, Luke two, one through seven. But then in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 8 down through verse 20, it's the first time in the Gospels that Jesus' birth is announced to someone who is not in his immediate family. Jesus' birth is announced to individuals, and as it's announced to them, there are at least four lessons that they learn, things that they experience as Jesus is born, and we can experience those same things if we desire. When Jesus came into the world, what did the people experience? Number one. They experienced an invitation to the humble. Luke chapter 2 and verse 8 says that there were shepherds in that region tending their flocks by night, and all of a sudden these angels appeared. And in verse 9 and in verse 10, there's brightness, there's glory, there's a message of comfort, and there's a promise extended to them. It's interesting the way Luke does this in verse one and verse two of Luke chapter two. He mentions these prominent politicians, the emperor Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, the governor. And it's as if he subtly shows us God sidestepping those individuals. And you get down to verse eight and verse nine. And God felt like the first people that needed to know about the birth of Jesus were not powerful politicians, but instead the shepherds. They weren't scholars on the level with the scribes. They weren't a part of the religiously elite on the level with the priests. No, they were just common, ordinary people. And it's to them that God brings this message about the arrival of His Son. They're told, To you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's God's message that runs throughout the Bible that God reveals Himself to the humble and to the lowly. He gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3 and verse 34. God has revealed His will to all men, but He takes a special interest in those that are humble and those that are lowly in James chapter two and verse five james says don't you know that God sends His grace and His mercy out to those individuals that are of humble estate? that God has not chosen the mighty and the wise and the strong, but weak things to exalt them first corinthians 1, 26 through twenty nine and that 's exactly what you have." And the revelation of God's will to the shepherds. When Jesus was born, it was an invitation. They experienced an invitation to all who are humble, all who are lowly. This doesn't mean that God excludes the rich or those in a certain tax bracket. But it does mean this, that the promise of Jesus's arrival and his actual fulfillment only benefits those that have a certain heart posture. Those that see themselves as they truly are. God says, this is the one I will look to, the one with the humble heart who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66 and verse two. And here are these shepherds just doing their business. And God says, I've got great news for you. Would you notice verse 10? The shepherds are told there's nothing to fear, but instead there's someone to behold. For a moment in history, they're told to look away from their work, look away from all of their business and focus on the great thing that God is doing in the world. And isn't that God's invitation to you and to me? Our lives are busy with so many different things. And here's God's invitation to the humble. If we would stop long enough to pay attention to it, he's saying, I've got great news for you. As long as you and I look at our sin, we'll often find ourselves saying, how can I ever be saved? But if we stop and behold, we'll often look at our savior and find ourselves saying, how can I ever be lost? They get this. You know, Jesus invitation. Matthew 11 and verse 28. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's for everybody in the world. If we'd humble ourselves down low enough to see it in Jesus' birth, there's an invitation to the humble. It's personal. In verse 11, he says to you, the shepherds are hearing this news and the angels say not to those people out there. No, it's actually for you. It's personal. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world and you could write in your Bible in parentheses your name because he sent his only begotten son. as plain, as simple and as ordinary as we are. When Jesus was born into the world, the people experienced this great reality that God's invitation is to the humble individual for everybody in the world who will receive it. He's come and he's come for us. And we need to appreciate it and see it. These shepherds saw it and they were blessed as a result of it. They heard this good news for you. This day is born in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. You know, so many people in the world believe that God can do great and amazing things and has great and amazing power. But not enough people think that God can do great and amazing things with them. But when Jesus came into the world, people experienced this truth. Yes, he can. With you. It's not for somebody out there in the distance. It's not even for some people 2,000 years ago alone. It's for people right here. In 2022 in Bowling Green, the birth of Jesus says, God invites the humble. Here's number two. When Jesus was born, the people experienced a God who keeps his promises. And look at verse 12. He doesn't just announce facts when the angel comes, he gets specific. When they go in the Bethlehem, he says, here's what you can expect to find. He says, there's a sign given to you in verse 12, and you'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And if you write in your Bible, just draw you an arrow right down to verse 16, because when they get there, the text says they saw Joseph. They saw Mary and they found just what the angel told them, a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in this feeding trough in this manger. God keeps his promises. But this word from the angels is not really just a promise that's been fulfilled about his most immediate message. It stretches all the way back to Genesis 315 when Adam and Eve ruined things in the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis 315, God says, one day I will send the snake crusher. And the seed of woman will crush the head of this serpent, even though his heel will be bruised in the process. When they get to Bethlehem and look this baby in the eyes, what they're seeing is more than an infant. They're seeing all of the promises of God wrapped up in this one little life because God has kept his promises. Which promises? All of them. It's Joshua 21, 45. Come to life. Not one good thing of all of the good promises that God made to Israel has failed. All of them have come to pass. And here he is. They met a God who always keeps his promises. The word came from the angels, but it was ultimately from God. And so their world could be they were their word could be banked on and trusted. It was true. They didn't have to doubt it. God was telling them the truth. When you get to the end of the Old Testament, and you get to the book of Malachi, the next page you turn You get to Matthew chapter one and verse one, and you know how the New Testament begins. The book of the generation, the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's God's way of saying to everybody in the world, whoever doubts him, if you think I'm lying to you about the promises I've made, just check the records. And he gives these generations, these genealogies, these families that Jesus had been born into to say, I told you so. And it is so. I keep my word. What does this mean for you and for me? You know what it means. It means you can trust him. Trust in him at all times. Psalm 62 and verse eight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Proverbs three in verse five. When we deal with the God that brought Jesus into the world, what the people experienced is this. We are not dealing with the God that we need to brace ourselves for disappointment. Instead, we're dealing with the God with whom we need to buckle up and brace ourselves for astonishment. He's going to do more than you can ask or even think. Ephesians three in verse 20, because he always keeps his promises and nothing stops him from doing that. God is a truth telling and honest God who always fulfills his word. And when Jesus came into the world, this was God's way of saying, I told you this is how it was going to be. And here it is. The prophets told you. And now here it is. But more than Jesus's birth simply being the means to God, keeping his promises. That's not all that's here. God is not saying, you see, I gave you Jesus. I always keep my word. He's saying something far different altogether. He's not just saying in Jesus, I keep my promises. But more than that, he's saying in the birth of Jesus, it's through Jesus that God's going to do everything that he's promised to do for his people. And so Paul could write to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians one and verse 20. All of the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. And it's through him that we utter our amen to God. Everything that God's going to do for anybody in the world, everything he's ever promised anybody in the Bible from Genesis to the last amen in Revelation 22. All of it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why we can't speed past the birth narrative. Well, it's about his death. But yes, in his birth, this is where God says you can trust me. You can believe me. I keep my word. Salvation's in nobody else other than Jesus, Acts 4 and verse 12. If you ever expect to make it back to God, it'll come through Jesus, John 14 and verse 6. All spiritual blessings are found in Christ, Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Everything that God's going to do for the rest of the time of history and everything He's ever done is found in Jesus. When Jesus was born, the people experienced a God who keeps His promises. You know how many people in the world today are looking for a sign? You know how many people pray on the bargain system with God? Maybe you've prayed like this. God, if you really exist, if you're really there, do X for me and then I believe. God, if you're really up there, if you're really on my side, do this for me. And then I'll know for a fact, God, if you're really rooting for me and I'm not abandoned, I've tried this before, but here's my ultimatum. God, give me a sign and then make it undeniable about your presence, about your existence, about your love for me. And what all of those statements miss is what the shepherds heard in verse 12. Notice the text to you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. The you there is plural. It'll be a sign for the shepherds. But this is God's last sign to everybody else in the world. It is not the case that God is doling out promises and signs to us individually as we specify them and make ultimatums of him. No, instead, God's done something better than that altogether. God has said, if you doubt me, Jesus is the last sign to all of humanity that God always keeps his word. Don't look past Jesus for more signs of God's authenticity, but look through him as the means through which God's going to do everything he ever said he would. Paul begins the Roman letter this way, Romans one, two through four. And he says concerning the prophets, this is the promise. Jesus Christ, the seed of David, he's born of David. and He's crucified and he's raised by the power of God, according to the spirit of holiness. You and I are dealing with the God who always keeps his promises. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's exactly what the people experienced. Here's number three. It's the arrival of peace on earth. Luke kind of rubs this in the Romans face in a sense. He starts with Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter two and verse one. And he and the other Roman emperors prided themselves in what they call Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. They gave each individual province their ability to run their lives by their own laws. There weren't many wars in the days of the Roman Empire, and they prided themselves on being a rather peaceful people. And then you get down to Luke chapter two and verse 13. And he says, God sends this angelic host. Now, when you see angelic host in the Old Testament, this is God's army. This means God is getting ready to fight. And then in verse 14, this astonishing thing comes to pass. It's not a fight. It's not a battle. The angels, this army of God, this angelic host appears and they say glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men with whom he's well pleased. When Jesus was born, people experienced peace on earth. Jesus made peace between nations and races and different classes of people. Ephesians 2 and verse 14. He keeps us in peace if our minds are fixed on him. Isaiah 26 and verse 3. He says, my peace will guard your minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians four and verse seven, even in the midst of tribulation, Jesus said, I've spoken these words to you that in me you might have peace. John 16, But it's not like the world's. My peace, I give you my peace. I leave with you not as the world gives. Do I give to you? Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. John 14, 27. When Jesus came, it was peace wrapped wrapped up in flesh and blood. It's not what the world thinks. Peace in the Bible is not no problems, no issues everything going your way peace biblically is God's inner tranquility this promise that God is with me and the person that believes that having this strong confidence in God that come what may whether things work out or they don't they already have because we've thrown all of our eggs in his basket and we trust him with everything within us and so Paul could write in second Thessalonians three sixteen, may the Lord himself give you peace at all times and in every way and when Jesus showed up this is exactly what people experienced But notice Luke's words. He says, peace on earth, among whom he's well pleased. God's peace is extended to everybody in the world. But the only people that benefit from it are those that are well pleased. God is well pleased in them because they're pleased with him. It's for a certain type of person. The person that has this goodwill that Luke describes. Is that you and is that me? You know, we can spend our whole lives trying to make peace with everybody else. We can try to make peace with strangers. We can do our best to make peace with our spouses and our employers, people in our families, our children. We can go out of our way to make sure we're on good terms with everybody else. And in the process, overlook this most important relationship. You know, some people never give any thought to whether or not they're actually on good terms with God. Some people just assume it and others just think, well, it's actually no big deal at all, whether he accepts me or not. And if we do it that way, we're doing it backwards. Every human relationship, no matter how good it is, no matter how easy it's going, if we're not on good terms with God, we're doing it backwards. And if we get on good terms with him and enjoy the peace that he extends to us, then and only then will those other relationships be fused together with the harmony that God desires. And so Jesus came to bring peace. In 1914, it's been called the Christmas Truce. Maybe you've heard about it. World War One, the British soldiers were encamped against the Germans. And in his diary, one British machine gunner talks about how he was in this sort of narrow trench. It was damp. It was wet and it was cold. And all of a sudden at 10 p.m., they heard this racket. And he said to one of his fellow soldiers, what is that German racket that I hear? And they said, sir, it's not racket. We believe the Germans are singing. It was Christmas Eve, after all. And in a moment later, the British were singing back. The Germans shouted out, come over here. And one of the sergeants on the British side said, you've got to meet us halfway. They did. They met him halfway in these two groups, these two armies who just moments before had only ever communicated with one another with the streaks of their bullets into one another's camps. All of a sudden were singing and dancing, sharing hugs. There was not one atom of hate in all of the camp. And they enjoyed a great Christmas Eve together. You know, Christmas came the next day and moments later, the war resumed. People have been astonished that armies could stop fighting for a day of peace to enjoy it. But what's more impressive than that is the peace treaty between heaven and earth. Jesus doesn't say meet me halfway. He comes all the way. And this is where Christianity is different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world is offering swimming lessons to drowning men and women. They're saying, listen, if you come up here, if you can make it, climb this mountain, do this ritual, we'll receive you. And God says, I know you won't make it. I know you won't come to me. So I'll come to you. If you turn to me in faith, we can have peace, not merely momentary peace. No, when you're plunged in the waters of baptism in that moment, the peace begins. That will last throughout eternity. The peace that Jesus died to purchase because he made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians one and verse 20. When Jesus came into the world, the people experienced peace on earth. Now, here's the last thing. Number four. When Jesus was born, they experienced an opportunity to participate The shepherds hear this message. Verse 15 says they desire to go to Bethlehem to see the things that have been spoken to them. Verse 16 says they go with haste and with speed. And in verse 17, they're the first evangelists in all the Bible. They began to make known this saying abroad everywhere. It's interesting. Luke's account does this and the other gospel writers as well. Luke's gospel begins with evangelism as the shepherds spread the good news. And it ends with Jesus commissioning everybody in the world to do the very same thing. Luke 24, 46 through 48, Jesus says, you're going to be witnesses to me about repentance and the remission of sins in all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The shepherds don't just hear this good news and take it in themselves. They're invited to participate in this and take the gospel to every everybody. They tell others and others are astonished and surprised. And in verse 20, they marvel, praise and glorify God. And we get to enjoy that same thing if we're willing. It's God's invitation to us to participate, to not merely know about the birth of Jesus in a sort of historical and distant way, but instead to say, where do we find ourselves in the biblical narrative, in the story to take it in and to receive it? The temptation for us is to think about how other people are going to receive the message. We can spend all of our time worried about how people are going to respond to the good news of Jesus, not just his arrival, but his death, his burial, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension back to heaven. But you know how people respond to the message is on them, but how we spread it or fail to do so is on us. And so God enlists us as his ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5 18 through 20, and he invites us to come in and to enjoy this message and then to go out and share it and reconcile the world. Back to himself. And these shepherds, though untrained, ordinary, plain individuals, just like you and me, God says, these are the kinds of people that I want not only to hear the message, but also to share it with other people. And as we sit in this auditorium this morning, God's saying the same thing. Those who are humble, those who know their place before God, those individuals who have believed that God always keeps His promises, and those that have enjoyed His blessed peace. I'm inviting you to participate to get off the sidelines and to get invested in the message of reconciliation with the world. Charlie Brown Christmas has been airing around this time of the year every year since about 1965. I don't know of many things that stay on TV as long as this has, especially in our age of rapidly changing technological devices. And various shows but here it is you know Charlie Brown is known for the unique striped shirt that he always wears and Linus his friend is known for his security blanket his friends they can't get him to part ways with it that is until a Charlie Brown Christmas near the end Charlie Brown says well nobody can tell me he's frustrated and he throws up his hands and he says well nobody can tell me what Christmas is all about and he's about to exit the stage and Linus says wait a minute I can and he gets up and without interruption He quotes Luke chapter two, eight through 14. You know, there are a lot of impressive things about Linus doing that. Number one, there was a time when a cartoon character could quote scripture. Isn't that impressive? Number two, he did it all from memory. No notes. He just knew the passage. But Charles Scholes, the creator of Charlie Brown, was doing more than that. Hidden in this scene is when Linus gets to Luke chapter two and verse 10, where the angels say to the shepherds, fear not. And in that moment, it's not just a moment of passion. It's a sign. Linus drops the blanket. And he's saying something to us. He's saying that in the message of Jesus, we all are invited to drop our blankets. Everything that we hold on for false senses of security, every facade that we want to hide behind, every idea of this imposter complex, trying to present ourselves to others as something that we're really not. It's in Jesus that he invites every one of us to drop our blankets and fear not, because he came into the world to save sinners. And as we see ourselves in that true light and realize what we really need, He invites us to embrace this true reality, not merely of a baby in a manger, but a savior on a cross that's ultimately glorified. And because he died, we can live. And because he lived, we don't have to fear dying. Jesus came into the world just like the prophet said that he would. And the people experienced the greatest message that has ever been told. And that message hasn't been completed. We're still sharing it with people today. And maybe somebody wants to enjoy the blessings of Jesus' earthly arrival. If you believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, you believe the message that's at least 2000 years old, the message that was first told to the shepherds that they shared with other people. You can turn from your sins, confessing him as Lord, the savior promised in the prophets, delivered in Bethlehem in the first century. You can be immersed in water to have your sins washed away. And when you do that, your sins are washed away. You become a Christian, a member of the church, but also a participant. And passing on the baton and sharing the heavenly message of Jesus with everybody you come into contact with. Maybe you've already done that. And if we can pray with you or pray for you, if we can encourage you and uplift you in any way, Jesus invites the humble. He invites the broken so that he can do what only he can do for us. And that is fix us, redeem us, and save us. This is your invitation. If we can help you come now, as together, we stand and as we sing.